DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind um, on this Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. And I think uh, everybody probably will uh, agree that this uh, is one of the oddest Thanksgivings that any of us are likely to live through. Um, You know what it would be like today in a normal uh, Thanksgiving here in Georgia, especially if you live in metro Atlanta, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport would be crowded. We'd be getting reports uh, hourly about the length of the security lines, about the traffic heading to the airport by mid-afternoon today at the latest. The highways would be jammed with people trying to get to wherever they're planning to go. And um, we'd all be in our kitchens getting set if we're uh, going to have family at our houses uh, to prepare big Thanksgiving dinners. That is not what's happening. We know that. Coronavirus cases mean that most Americans are choosing to stay at home this year. CNN released some figures about an hour ago saying that their survey showed that about 65% excuse me, of Americans are planning to stay home uh, tomorrow. Given the sharp increases in COVID-19 cases across the country, the CDC is urging people not to travel and also saying if you absolutely have to, they're reinforcing the uh, measures that they have all along and the public health officials have all along. Uh, wear a mask, uh, keep yourself socially distanced from one another, wash your hands and all of that uh, in the meantime. Um, meanwhile, the White House task force is now saying that while Georgia so far has been relatively lucky in escaping the biggest surges that are affecting many states across the country, we, if we're not careful, could be in store for a major resurgence here. And before I introduce our panel, let me play you a a soundbite from Governor Kemp's news conference yesterday in which he talked about his plans after uh, reporters asked him about that White House task force report. Well, I don't see any reason to take any additional steps right now. As I spoke earlier, we've got plenty of capacity we're in constant communication with our hospital CEOs. We're watching, you know, not just one number, but every number. So that's Governor Kemp. And uh, what he had to say yesterday and much of what I've just mentioned are a fodder for our conversation. We're really fortunate today to have an outstanding panel of public health uh, leaders to join us for our conversation uh, among them. Uh, Dr. Joshua Weitz, the patent distinguished professor of biological sciences at Georgia Tech University. We're really glad to have you back, Joshua. You've been um, out front in terms of the work you're doing with your group, uh, but also in in speaking out about what you think uh, the state of Georgia particularly needs to do to mitigate the virus. Thank you for being here on the day before Thanksgiving, Joshua. Well, thanks for having me back, and I'm delighted to be here again with Mark and also with, with Karen Landman, I, who's, uh, who I've been delighted to interact with also over the summer, talking about issues related to data and transparency, particularly in the state. 
Um, uh, Will, we've got, we're going to talk about a risk assessment uh, a tool that you've created as well in just a couple of minutes. Um, you mentioned Mark. Uh, that would be Dr. Mark Rosenberg. He is the president emeritus of the Task Force for Global Health, uh, which he led for many years. Uh, he also, of course, was, uh, for those of you who've heard him on our show before, uh, spent um, a couple of decades as a, a high-ranking official at the Centers for Disease Control. Mark, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for devoting this show to important messages at a really critical time, just before the Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays. Hopefully we can reach people and help them make healthy and safe decisions. Um, yep, I hope that's the case, too. And Dr. Karen Landman joins us as well. Dr. Landman uh, is not only a physician and epidemiologist, but a journalist who writes about medicine for many publications. Uh, before the show went on, Karen, you were telling everybody that you've been uh, filing stories uh, for, among other news organizations, the New York Times recently. And, you know, we're always glad to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here, Karen. Thank you so much for having me back again, Nugget. Uh, Nugget, Bill. <laughs> with such a distinguished panel, especially. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. You can call me Nugget. I don't mind it at all. Uh, all right. <laughs> um, let's start with uh, let's start with the state of affairs in Georgia uh, right now. Joshua, let me uh, ask you to help us with this. I, I believe I'm not looking right now at the current numbers from the Department of Public Health here, but I do know that our numbers are back up significantly. I think we had something like well over 2,000 new cases reported in the last day or so. Um, hospitalizations are going up. Uh, and again, we have that White House Task Force report saying if we're not careful, things are going to get out of control. How do you evaluate, uh, Joshua, where we stand in this state right now with uh, mitigation efforts? Sure. So you are right that we are seeing through basically the start of October and continuing till now a steady trend upwards so that we have about 2,500 new cases per day on average. And if we look back, that was about where we were on the tail end of our summer peak, except this time it's going the wrong way. And if you recall, in the beginning of July, we saw that initial case surgeons going up. And uh, with respect to the other factors, it's just evident this is also, as it's been throughout, heterogeneous in terms of risk. So we're aware that there was intense spread um, in terms of metro Atlanta, but if we look across the state, it's important to reinforce that a lot of the hardest hit in terms of numbers of cases per capita are actually in rural parts of Georgia, including northwest and northeast Georgia. So I think we're seeing is unfortunately an increase in cases. It's hard to predict out you know, a month from now whether or not this bump will become a surge with respect to peaks that we saw in the summer. But of course, the impacts will continue to be felt, meaning hospitalizations going up. We're seeing again, slight increase in ICU capacity, the ICU use, excuse me, even though there certainly is the capacity for now, and we're still seeing that kind of plateau, unfortunately, in fatalities. So one of the things I think that's going to be difficult and continue to reinforce is that these holidays, unfortunately, increase that spread, and then the impact will be seen for weeks even after. So we have to, as Mark you know implied, remain vigilant. 
You know, uh, Mark, I want to pick up on on the notion of seeing the impact weeks down the road. Um, That was one of the things that there were a couple of things that Governor Kemp said yesterday that I thought were worth our discussing. One of them is he said, well, what we're dealing with right now is a bump in the numbers, not a spike. We still are not in uh, dangerous territory. And in a way, he's I mean, it is interesting that Georgia is fourth in the nation in lowest number of new cases reported over a seven day period. We've been lucky in that respect. Uh, But then, as as of course you heard, he said he doesn't see any need to take any additional mitigation measures right now because we still have our hospitals. Hospitals still have capacity. Um, But it's that's not understanding the fact that hospitalizations will follow the increase in cases, right? Right. The governor said he's looking at all the numbers. And I think what's really important is not to look at the numbers, but to look at the behaviors. Whether you call it a bump or a spike or a surge or a peak, the numbers are scary. They're going up and they don't have to. We can get them down. We can control it with our behaviors. And that's what's really important to look at. And uh, I think we have to give people a reason to hope, to adopt safe practices. The first reason is they work. The second reason is that help is on the way. Vaccines are coming. It's going to change it. Let's hold on for a while. This is not going to be forever. And let's not give up. And uh, I think there needs to be that combined message of hope and being careful at the same time. I think there are lots of behaviors we can do while waiting for the vaccine, lots of behaviors we have to do. We have to wear masks. We have to avoid crowds. We have to continue to wash our hands. We should continue to meet outside. And uh, I think one message I would give people is this should be a monogamous Thanksgiving. We shouldn't do it with a lot of people. We should be really careful about this, both to protect ourselves and protect our loved ones and to protect the other people. We have to break the chains of transmission, but we can do it. And I think a message from the governor that says we've got to do it until we get to the goal line with the vaccines would be very helpful. Now, I think a real question is, How do we effectively reach those people who are resistant to wearing masks, who see it as a sign of giving in, or who see it as a sign of being politically incorrect to wear a mask? How do we get the right messengers? Who are the people that the non-mask wearers respect? Who are the people that they will listen to? How do we mobilize everybody altogether. I don't think it's just telling them this is awful, this is terrible. I think we have to get much more sophisticated in the messages we give and who we use to give the messages. Um, you know, Karen? so yeah, I, um, I don't know if any of you watched the press conference on Facebook yesterday, but I did. And um, there were 50, about 14 hundred comments on that. And many, many, many of them were from folks who had um, felt themselves to be in the governor's base um, and who are now very, very angry with him, not about COVID, but about the way the election has played out in Georgia. And I think that um, the governor is currently getting it from 
all sides. And even the people who at one point might have followed his lead on something like masks, I think many of them now feel very alienated. Um, in addition, it's not clear to me how much input um, the governor is getting from the health department. Um, in a, a story I wrote earlier this year, uh, you know, it, they were, it sounded like they were being told what to do uh, a bit more than being asked what to do. And I fear that the, the governor's office is currently operating uh, on its own, very distracted by um, uh, political events in the state and simply not connecting with the base in the way that they would need to to really provide a lot of leadership on masks. I think it's a pretty precarious position for a leader to be in um, and for a populist to be in, um, assuming that the leader has any influence on what they actually do. So I think, you know, if there was ever going to be a moment where Kemp might have been able to lead folks in Georgia who are resistant to wearing masks toward wearing masks, to enforcing a mask mandate, um, to save businesses from, you know, who stay open, who, who are allowed to and must stay open from, um, you know, being part of the pandemic and being themselves infected or causing infections among customers, you know, that, the moment where he might have had that influence, I'm a little worried that moment has passed. And I think now we need to be very creative about um, ways in which we might, you know, make masks align with uh, masks and distancing and all sorts of other preventive things align with what people believe their values to be um, in a different way other than relying on our political leaders, because I think that moment has passed. Yeah, so to, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to just jump in, which is that when we think about the, the response of focusing on the, unfortunately, the later stage of an infection cycle, which is hospitalizations, that notion of resources, again, I think is too far down the chain. And that's something we've talked about before. And it's still with the light at the end of this tunnel with vaccines and a lot of promising evidence of multiple kinds of vaccines with high efficacy. The question is, well, how do we buy our ourselves that time. And so we've talked about masks, and people have heard that. We've talked about distancing and gathering outdoors, and all those are terrific ways to try to reduce the risk of infection. But one of the things that we haven't talked about enough in this state, enough nationwide, and there's still time to do, which is to use testing, because we keep using these numbers which come from testing, but not as passive indicators, but as active mitigation steps. And that is one where, unfortunately, the state and the nation have not invested enough. And yes, we're doing a lot more tests. And the message we've communicated, for example, Georgia Tech, where we've built our own capacity to have about 10,000 plus tests a week done for students, staff, and faculty, for free using a saliva-based test, is that we're doing this to identify individuals who may be infected and stop a chain of transmission before they start. This notion of using rapid, whether it's an antigen test or a PCR test, as an intervention. The central idea is that more testing can mean more documented cases in the near term but fewer actual cases in the long term. And so that's one that I just wish and hope, and even now moving forward, that if people were making a request for their political leaders for a change, that's a way to use money and resources to make a difference now that goes beyond just individual responsibility, but really government and, and, and political responsibility as well. 
Um, uh, Karen and Mark, I want to ask you, I know, Karen, you want to jump back in, but let me do it with a question uh, first and then bring Mark into the conversation. So, Karen, one of the things the governor would say is, um, and, and I would understand why some of our listeners wonder about this, too, um, we say he hasn't been forceful enough ever since the very beginning of this in trying to tamp down the virus. And yet right now, Georgia has not seen the kind of growth in numbers that all but 46 other states have seen. So I, I guess he would say, hey, it's working here. Why? What do you imagine accounts for the fact that we haven't seen the same kind of spikes that other states have? Is it that it's warmer here longer and people can stay outdoor? I mean, is there any explanation that gives us reason to think that things are working fairly well? You know, I think you're not wrong to think that weather may have something to do with it. We've had a pretty um, temperate fall so far, so I think people have been spending time outside. But, you know, we also have not been our, – our testing sites in Georgia are not aligned optimally with population centers, and I'm not sure that we're really testing people um, vigorously in the places where we are most likely mm. to have outbreaks. So I, I suspect – that if there is, uh, you know, a, a more localized outbreak in parts of the state, we're going to come to it much later and probably too late to really contain it. And so there may be activity that is happening now that we just won't pick up on because of the way we're testing. Um, so, and I think, you know, there's also some part of it, you know, a lot of the outbreaks that we've seen and that other states have seen, especially states with high numbers of undocumented folks, we're just seeing that those people do not show up to testing because they're scared of what might happen to them if they're picked up as um, as being undocumented, detected as being undocumented in those scenarios. So I think the people who are most at risk for experiencing an outbreak in their community are least likely to actually show up in the testing um, and even go to the hospital to get care. Uh, Mark, you want to weigh in? Um, what I'd weigh in, Bill, is where the governor says, first, I think we're on our way to a surge, and we are not doing well as a state in terms of the most rapid change towards increases in cases. I think we ranked yesterday 48th out of 50. Um, that was pretty bad. But I think the numbers that the um, governor should be paying attention to go well beyond the case rate, the hospitalization rate, and the death rate. And I think what we need to be paying attention to are the social costs. And the social costs are not measured just by cases because people are paying social costs even when no one in their family is sick, when they know other people who are sick and dying, when they are out of work, when their kids aren't learning anything. People are getting pandemic fatigue. And pandemic fatigue with economic fear and a sense of hopelessness leads them to behave in ways that really increase the risk. And I think the governor needs to pay attention to the social costs. They're not measured just by the number of cases and they're piling up. They're getting higher and higher. If you look at our healthcare workers, the social costs among healthcare workers are tremendous now. The rates of depression, anxiety, the number of people leaving the healthcare field because it's been too much for them to take for too long. 
um, these social costs need more attention because they're going to be driving people to behave in ways that they wouldn't if they were less depressed or less anxious or less hopeless. And we've got to take those into account to figure out how we act, what we do, and what we say right now. And I, I think um, that these are reversible. Thanks. I think they can change. But just one second, a, a sports analogy. I remember when people in Atlanta learned that Atlanta was going to host the Olympics. The mood here changed on a dime. People were beeping their horns. They were cheering. They were yelling. They were shouting. The same thing happened when our teams reached the finals of professional sports or when Georgia Tech or UGA make it to the highest bowl games. Um, it changes quickly when we see ourselves winning, when we are, see ourselves as together. Resilience is a team sport, and it's needed now, um, yeah, and I that kind of hope is needed. Um, thank you for that. Joshua, I want to talk for a few minutes, um, especially with people traveling. I suspect people who are, have made their Thanksgiving plans. I get that. Uh, you're either going someplace, you're going to be with people, you're not going to be with people. Nevertheless, Joshua, you uh, and a team of your colleagues at Georgia Tech uh, uh, created a risk assessment planning tool that can be used to get a sense of where you're, depending on the size of the group you're thinking of interacting with and where geographically you're going to be, whether it's Thanksgiving or the weeks leading up to Christmas. And it's a really fascinating tool. Can you, we're going to post a link to it, but can you tell us a little bit about what that tool is and how I can make use of it? Sure. So this is an interactive website, and I won't do the whole link now, uh, but it's available uh, at our homepage at Georgia Tech, in which you essentially can scroll interactively throughout the United States, and it displays the risk that one or more individuals may be infected. It's an estimated risk that one or more may be infected in events of different sizes. It's updated in real time, so every day as it pulls in data from state and county levels of the Department of Public Health, it gives you a sense of essentially the risk that is often hard to calculate. How do we go, and I think this goes back to steps that public health institutions can take, how do we go from case data per 100,000 or trend lines that can be hard to par parse or positivity to something tangible? What are the odds that in an event of 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 that one or more may be infected? And I think translating these statistics that can often be far from our lived experience into something that is on our mind. Should we go inside and dine indoors? Or should we dine outdoors and maybe take away? Should we have those 20 people, including potentially older individuals who may be more vulnerable to severe infections? Should we hold that event? Or should we wait or perhaps gather outdoors at distance and we can still share and fellowship and enjoy time because obviously the social component is key, but do so in a safe or more prudent way. So if you scroll around, it's covid19risk.bioside.gatech.edu. You can find it and you will see also that the risk is heterogeneous. Right now, clearly in the Midwest and Plains, there's significantly elevated risks. But even within the state of Georgia, it begins to connect as to why people have been trying to communicate that small gatherings are not prudent right now because there's still 
in some places what appears to be almost a coin flip level chance once you get to be have a group of about 25, or maybe in every few groups uh, uh, there will be a chance that someone there may have COVID-19. And then the risk then becomes that one case becomes many. And the key point here is try to communicate precisely why we need to think twice about these gatherings or turn them into safer gatherings by, again, gathering insofar as we can outdoors, moving the timer space around so we can still enjoy family, but in a way that really enjoys them in the long term, right, preserves them in their health and happiness. Yeah, as I uh, as I said, uh, we are posting links to your tool on uh, all of our social media platforms, including our Twitter. Which, by the way, if you don't follow us, you should at Politics GPB, Politics GPB. And I'll post it on my personal Twitter, which is N I G U T Nigut B. Um, you know, and as I look at Karen, as I look at Joshua's assessment. Uh, and he's already said it, essentially. Uh, man, if you're thinking about traveling to the upper Midwest, to Iowa, to Minnesota, to parts of uh, Wisconsin, up into North and South Dakota, parts of Oklahoma, uh, they're pure red. Uh, and it looks like dangerous. Do not be thinking about going there, I think, Karen, is the message. Yeah, it's pretty alarming. And, you know, people who would be traveling from Georgia to those places I think very often would be flying rather than driving, which adds a whole other layer of risk. I I think I saw a report recently where somebody who had been asymptomatic and even tested negative right before getting on a plane, um, there was spread from them to, uh, I want to say, 17 other people on the flight. Um, You know, uh, as as good a job as the airline industry has tried to do uh, in mitigating risk, it's not a no, a no risk proposition to fly. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's important to think about this heterogeneity. Um, the fact that, you know, even block to block in, in neighborhoods throughout America, the risk is simply going to be different when you leave the house um, to, to meet with other people, whether it's because you're able to meet outside or not, whether it's because community norms are, uh, you know, promote social distancing and mask wearing or not. But I think, um, recognizing that heterogeneity, you know, our, our public health institutions still need to message in a way that maximizes caution. So I think we shouldn't confuse that uh, blanket messaging of, you know, stay home, don't travel um, with, you know, the likelihood that we as individuals can do safe things within certain boundaries um, that might not you know, you know, that would involve maybe traveling across town, being outside with family um, in a safe way that's good for our mental health. Karen, you get the last word for this segment. We got to take a break. But when we come back more on uh, the pandemic that we're dealing with on this Thanksgiving holiday, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Dr. Karen Landman, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, and Dr. Joshua Weitz all join me today to uh, talk about what the uh, coronavirus 
uh, landscape looks like as we head into uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and beyond with uh, Christmas not far away. Let's talk a little bit about the vaccinations that we expect are going to start by the end of the year. The fact that we have it at least two, maybe three or not more uh, vaccines that are going to start being available in at least limited ways at first. Uh, Mark Rosenberg, you, your daughter, Julie, who's a respected public health uh, worker in her own right, following in your footsteps, and Dr. Bill Fagey, one of the giants of public health, all three uh, worked together on an op-ed that appeared in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on Sunday. And I, I want to give you a chance to just tell us a little bit about it, but I thought the lead of the piece itself is uh, something to, to give us a little bit of, of hope. You say the three of us have worked in global health for our whole careers, and we are eternal optimists who believe that by using science, we can change things for the better. And you do say that one of the reasons that we have some optimism is that the COVID-19 vaccine development has progressed faster than any other pathogen in history. Uh, And yet, Mark, you caution in your article that there are things that we don't know about how widely available the vaccine will be at first, uh, and other things about it that mean that we cannot suddenly let down our guard, right? Yes, thanks, Bill. The basic message is one of optimism, as you said. The help is coming, and it's on the way. But there are still some questions and some very important questions. First, we don't know how effective they will be over time. If they give protection, how long will it last? We don't know whether when someone is vaccinated, they can still transmit the infection and how long it will take to have enough vaccines and how long it will take to get the vaccines to the people so that we're protected. These are things we don't know yet, but we're working very quickly. We're working to find out. But what is clear is that even if we start vaccinating people before the end of this year, it will probably be the second half of next year before it comes to most of us, even in this country. It's going to take time to get the vaccines out, and we still have to figure out the best way to get them out and to get them to people. What people are thinking about is that we should get them out in phases. And what there's general agreement on is that the first people who ought to be vaccinated are the high-risk workers who work in health facilities and healthcare facilities and first responders. They should get them first. The next group should be people who have significant health problems that increase the risk, people with diabetes, lung disease, heart disease, immunocompromised people, and people who live in healthcare facilities or nursing homes or convalescent homes. So that's the first group that should get them. The second group are the critical workers in other high-risk settings, people who work on public transit or grocery stores, teachers, school staff, older adults, people who work in shelters, people who work in prisons. Then the third group would be young adults, children, and the rest of the critical workers And finally, group four, anyone else living in the U.S. who didn't get the vaccines. The sobering part of this, too, is not only realizing 
well, not all in phase one, but that right now they don't have enough to vaccinate more than 10% of the people in Georgia in even the highest groups. It's going to take a while to get it, and we have to figure out. People are working very hard to figure out how to get it to the people in need. It's going to take some time. It's coming, yeah. yes, but it'll take some time. Uh, Joshua, give us your take on what the uh, landscape's going to look like as the vaccine becomes available, we hope, later this year, even in those limited supplies that Mark is talking about. Well, I think that he's Mark is eliciting a key point here with respect to efficacy and effectiveness. And I just want to kind of talk about that for a moment and maybe one other point on even indirect benefits, which, first of all, going back to the theme of good news, let's have some good news. And this is incredible news. I mean, the fact that this has gone so quickly from conception to a development of a vaccine, and in fact, multiple vaccine potentials in a limited amount of time is really good news. And now the positive news about efficacy in a clinical trial then needs to take the next stage to effectiveness in terms of programs. And that program will be impacted by logistics, supply chain, but also, I think, it, going back to this theme of behavioral scientists and reaching the public, which is also compliance and willingness to participate in a program so that we actually collectively get the benefits of effective vaccines. And I think one of the key things that we need to be doing collectively is in parallel to the development of supply chains and logistics, also make sure that the public gets behind the notion of actually taking a safe and effective vaccine. And so if we don't do that, then all this effort may still leave many vulnerable and we'll still be fighting brush-ups and brush fires here and there uh, when we see uh, outbreaks of cases. And one other point I think that's still sort of in the mix, which is a paper just came out of perspective by Dr. Molly Gallagher at Emory University as part of Katya, Professor Katya Coel's team, talking about the difference in thinking about effectiveness and efficacy with respect to populations. If a particular vaccine is very good at stopping symptoms in severe cases, that's very good news. But what happens if it doesn't stop asymptomatic cases and could still lead to onward transmission? And then those who aren't vaccinated could yet again have the more severe case. So I think that's one of the things that we need to be talking about. But again, takeaway here is that there's going to be a process of introduction to the population. And I think a lot of these questions about logistics and also really the penetration and willingness of people to take the vaccine are ones we're going to have to grapple with at the same time and move just as fast as we did on the vaccine development side. You know, uh, you know, Karen, uh, uh, both Joshua and Mark have echoed comments that we've heard on our show before from both Bill Fagey, uh, who laid out for us a few weeks ago the distribution plan that he and his committee had come up with, um, and then also Carlos Del Rio, both saying what really Mark and Joshua are indicating too, just because we have a vaccine doesn't mean we ha- ha- can stop wearing masks, can stop social distancing, all the other measures at least for the year ahead, are likely to have to remain in place, right? Yeah, that's right. I think um, I think the point uh, differentiating between efficacy and effectiveness is kind of a wonky uh, public health term, but it really means, you know, is this thing that works really well in a controlled setting of a trial, is it going to work in real life? I think, you know, uptake is a big 
part of this. Um, and, you know, trying to maximize uptake, I think, will really improve the likelihood that this plays out really well in, in um, populations. I, I've seen some really interesting strategies for trying to uh, increase uptake when the time comes. And um, there are folks in the world of behavioral economics who are doing some really interesting thinking about how to incentivize people um, to take the vaccine with small or large payments, even tying taking the vaccine to um, receiving some of the um, economic benefits of um of some of the plans that have been made to, to support folks and small businesses. So I think there are a lot of creative ways that we can um, uh, make taking the vaccine really a positive experience for people um, and, and, and ways to incentivize that to really make the outcome uh, as, as good as possible. But yes, we'll, we'll need to continue everything else we're doing um, for the, for the same, hey. for the rollout. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Mark, real quick, and I want to bring you in. Uh, so there's an organization called the Sergo Foundation. I have to acknowledge I don't know a great deal about their work, but they put together a website that does seem to be pretty interesting. They look at the number of people who would be involved in each group in terms of getting the vaccine in states across the country. And I'm assuming, let's assume, for the sake of discussion, their figures are correct. Uh, they say in Georgia, high-risk workers in healthcare facilities – 470,000 people, first responders, another 145,000 people, people with significant comorbidities, um, cor- 1 million plus people, older adults in congregate or overcrowded settings, another 86,000. In other words, we have an enormous uh, number of people, they say as many as 4.5 million people who will eventually need a vaccine in, just in the state of Georgia. The need is very great, Bill. The supply is still short. So we're not going to have enough even to vaccinate the highest priority groups in the very beginning, just a part of them. It's going to take time, but we can bear with it. We also need to remember that most of these vaccines require two doses. So the person has to go once and then they have to go again three weeks later before it works. And we're still finding out how safe these vaccines are going to be. There are some side effects from vaccines, like Guillain-Barre, the paralysis that followed the swine flu vaccine, that take four months to appear and large numbers to be vaccinated to make it visible. So we still are tracking the safety of the vaccine and need to follow it. There's one other good news, though, about masks. If people get a vaccine that is 90% effective, let's say I get that vaccine and I'm an older person, I still have a 10% chance that I'm not protected. Mm. I'm still playing roulette, Russian roulette, when I go out there, even with a 90% effectiveness of this vaccine. Again, it's a reason to continue to wear masks. And the whole philosophy about masks has also changed in that it not only protects the people that the mask wearer is in front of, it protects the wearer as well. It works both ways. It's the same thing with avoiding groups. We protect ourselves and we protect the others. Good reasons to continue. And and just to build on that point, 
Yep, just to build on that point with respect to the example of the older individual for which they may be concerned that a 90% effective or even 95% means 5 or 10% not necessarily effective, right? Which is yet re- again reinforcing that we're in this together because then that older individual will have a higher chance of being protected if all the other people around them have taken the vaccine. And so they're cutting off potential routes for the virus to hop from person to person to them. And so just like masks protect you and protect others, also it's key to reinforce the fact that when we embark on really an unprecedented national campaign to vaccinate individuals, that it is a collective action, one that is a public good, and one in which even if we are at individually a very low risk of having a severe case, that by being vaccinated, we add to getting across that herd immunity threshold, and there's been all this talk this year about are we near the herd immunity threshold? No. We started immunologically naive, and the safest route across was always to reduce cases and then vaccinate so that we could cross there without having to go through all of the cases and hospitalizations and severe cases and fatalities. So just, again, to reinforce that key point, to help that individual who may be at risk with a mostly but not perfectly effective vaccine, the more of us who take it, the better off we all are. Um, Karen, you know, this notion that masks are still going to be essential is really important to me. I, I, I get that, that masks have become a partisan political issue. I mean, we all get that. Uh, we can go to parts of Georgia where nobody's wearing a mask, and those tend to be places that are red counties, red uh, cities. Um, but this notion that Americans pride their individual freedom, I even understand that. But wearing a ma- but this notion that you don't have to wear a mask because no one can force you to do it is exactly counter to what Joshua White sh- just talked about. We do it for each other. We do it, maybe we don't care whether we get the virus, but we have every reason in the world to be socially responsible and make sure we don't give the virus to somebody else. And that seems so fundamental. I can't imagine why it doesn't cross partisan lines. I think it's really hard, Bill. Um, I think we've we've entered a place um, where I think there are just there's a segment of the population out there that just don't really want to be governed um, by anything, by by elected officials, by public health. I think they just see their stake in the world as lone wolves when, you know, when in reality they really benefit from so many of the things that the people and institutions who govern us do. But they, I think they just don't see that. And they're often extraordinarily vocal about this point of view. And so that has spread. And so you've got just a, a large population of folks who just do not want to – it's like a, a it's like an entire population of people who are toddlers near bedtime and just don't want to. So I don't – I don't – you know, I don't <laughs> think the, the route is necessarily um, reasoning. You know, you don't negotiate with people who have entered a state like this the same way you would not negotiate with a toddler. You just simply make rules. Um, even if they're rules that don't force them to do things and that don't arrest them for, you know, gatherings, um, you simply exclude them from certain opportunities if they refuse to do things. And I think that may be 
you know, one of the more productive ways for us to think about um, enforcing some of these preventive measures now. Um, I, I, we're getting to the end of our time with you all, uh, but before we go, very quickly from each of you, and uh, let's talk talk to you, Dr. Landman. How are, is your Thanksgiving changed tomorrow because of the virus? Give us just a quick uh, couple of minutes about that. So I, um, I see my parents once a week. They're the only people that I see um, indoors, and... Um, uh, and I'm the only, we are the only people that they see indoors. So we are a bubble. Um, everybody else that we see, we see with masks on outdoors. Um, and uh, so we see each other once a week for dinner anyway. Uh, we normally do that on Friday evening. But uh, this week we're going to do it on Thursday evening. And um, I am going to relieve my mother of the cooking duties for the day. And, and do you each get tested before these once weekly uh, meetings? Um, we do not. Um, I have been tested recently, and my partner has as well because his work has mandated that. Um, so we both know that we are negative as of the past week. Um, but there are very, very few tests that I would consider reliable enough to make that a bar to pass before Thanksgiving. Or so we would never consider okay. doing it oh, in that situation. Yeah, because I don't think it's reliable, yeah. you know. Uh, Joshua, real quick, how about you? How has your Thanksgiving changed by the virus? Sure. We usually would travel back to my parents' home where we have um, not only my folks, but other relatives, sister and her family in the Washington, D.C. area. We decided not to do that this year. Uh, I like to cook, so I'll be making a smaller turkey this year (laughs) for the family. And uh, we may depending on whether eat outside with one set of neighbors, but otherwise it'll be a small Thanksgiving with some Zoom activities. There are some double stuff Oreos uh, apparently involved for the children and something else <laughs> that my sister has wonderfully organized. She's an educator and she always comes up with creative ideas. Uh, so that's, oh, that that's tomorrow's great. plan. Oh, Thursday's plan, excuse me. Oh, that sounds good. Mark? We will be celebrating outside without turkey, but with pizza um, from Mellow Mushroom, and we'll be celebrating outside with our grandchildren and our daughter, and we'll be grateful that it's not going to be like this forever, and we're going to play basketball and mini baseball, and we'll be together at 10 feet. Well... For, I hope all of you uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving, uh, given the restrictions. Joshua White's, Mark Rosenberg, Karen Landman. You know, I said on the show after Carlos Del Rio was on a couple weeks ago when Bill Fagey did the show, I cannot tell you how grateful I am to have public health leaders in our community who we get the opportunity to talk to. I think that the work of public health uh, uh, people, whether you're doctors, researchers, uh, professors, is some of the most vital work that we do. And I feel like it's a real privilege to get a chance to have you all on our show and to talk to our audiences about this strange pandemic through which we're living. So thank you all very much for being here. Um, have a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back with the rest of the show. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, I just want to take the last couple of minutes before we finish for a point, several points of personal uh, privilege. We know what a strange 
holiday. Uh, this is going to be for so many people sad in many ways, a little bit lonely for some of you. So I was thinking about um, how to make the most of the holiday season. I, I thought about a poem by, and it's a hokey poem, I'd be the first to admit it, by uh, the poet Ella Wheeler Wilcox, who uh, did most of her writing of poetry and other works in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, and this is a poem about Thanksgiving. And, and it seemed appropriate to read just a couple of stanzas of it to you today. Uh, this is how it starts. We walk on starry fields of white and do not see the daisies. For blessings common in our sight, we rarely often offer praise. We sigh for some supreme delight to crown our lives with splendor and quite ignore our daily store of pleasure sweet and tender. There's not a day in all the year but holds some hidden pleasure. And looking back, joys, joys oft appear to brim the pass-wide measure. But blessings are like friends, I hold, who love and labor near us. We ought to raise our notes of praise while living hearts can hear us. We ought to make the moments notes of happy, glad thanksgiving, the hours and days a silent phrase of music we are living. And so the theme should swell and grow as weeks and months pass o'er us and rise sublime at this good time, a grand thanksgiving chorus. So be grateful. I'm grateful. I am so grateful for the extraordinary team I now get to work with every day. Um, Jesse Neiswanger, our engineer, Jake Troyer, who comes in on times, uh, Sam Burmis Dawes, and uh, Amelia Brock, who's joined us as our senior producer. Um, it, it's been extraordinary to get to work with each of you, and I'm so happy that we have found a way to be together, even as we see each other only on screens day in and day out. But most important of all, I know that some of you listen to this show regularly, and you do it in a somewhat passive way. You're not attached to it. You come to us for perspective on news. But there are some of you out here who have created a genuine community around Political Rewind. You talk to us regularly, whether it's on Facebook Live, whether it's in emails that you uh, send to me, whether it's the way you tweet about the show. And over the last year particularly, this year in which we started doing the show live five days a week, talking about the election, which seems to be never-ending, but also the pandemic, also the questions of racial justice that have become so important in our conversations, you have told us that we matter to you, and you have become part of our daily lives and really are our Political Rewind community. Everything you say about the show that is meaningful to you is something that we take to our hearts. And so I'm very grateful to you for uh, being part of our lives here on Political Rewind. And I hope you as a community continue uh, listening to us and that we are able to continue to offer you insight, analysis, information uh, every day. So with all that said, I wish each and every one of you the happiest Thanksgiving you can have, whether you're able to be with your families and best friends or not. Um, we're going to take the next couple of days off. We've got to take a breath. Uh, news has been rushing at us much too swiftly. So I think uh, Sam, Amelia, and I are especially glad we're going to get to think a little bit more about what matters in our lives and uh, think about the words of Ella Wheeler Wilcox who reminds us we really do have much to be grateful for 
even if the daisies are buried under the snow. Thank you for today. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. We'll be back on Monday. Until then, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and if you haven't gotten your flu shot by now, there's no point in even talking to you about it anymore, but do it. (laughs) Bye-bye.